Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Great. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we'll be hearing from Mr. Jack Sacco. Mr. Sacco is the award-winning and Amazon number one best-selling author of Where the Birds Never Sing and Above the Treetops. Originally from Birmingham, Alabama, he earned a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Notre Dame. He is the winner of the Alabama Library Association's 2005 Author Award for Where the Birds Never Sing. Past winners of this prestigious award include Harper Lee for To Kill a Mockingbird and Walker Percy for The Second Coming. Where the Birds Never Sing is a nonfiction account of his father Joe Sacco's experiences during the Second World War, including his part in the liberation of the notorious Nazi concentration camp at Dachau. Mr. Sacco, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and I want to thank everybody for, for tuning in, joining us. Um, I, would, I want to share with everyone today an account of my father's experiences during World War II. When I was a boy, he, my father used to show me swords and, and medals and things that he had gotten during the war. I brought a couple of them. I have a couple of them with me. This one is a, a sword that he got at a, uh, at a Nazi officer's house uh, at, the, uh, at the very end of the war. And, um, and, and, you know, this was fascinating to see something like this as a, as a kid. Here's another one that uh, was a dagger. That, uh, that he had gotten and brought home after the war. So I would love seeing things like this. I'm gonna show you some, uh, some pictures, if I may, uh, with, of, of some of the things that he would show me and some of the photographs that we have uh, that, I, that I watched and looked at uh, as I was a kid. Uh, of course, this is the, the, the title of the book, uh, the cover of the book that I wrote, Where the Birds Never Sing, which is the account of his experiences. But when I was a boy, these are, these are his medals, and these uh, these were up on a wall, and we would, I would see these, and just they were fascinating to me. In fact, I'm wearing uh, one of his insignias on my lapel in honor of him. Um, the uh, if you look at these, you can see that uh, on on. Of course, there's a photograph of him. There's a cross, and, and there's, a, there's an interesting story about the cross. He was raised an Italian uh, uh, Catholic, uh, son of the only son of Italian immigrants, and uh, this cross was given to him by his grandfather before he left to go to World War II. It was actually originated. This cross originated with a priest up at the University of Notre Dame, where I ended up going to uh, to, to university. And he carried this with him throughout the war. So he wanted this to be prominent in his, in his medals and memorabilia. Uh, on this, this slide also, you can see the picture of the, the, the insignia from the Third Army with the A with the, uh, with the circle around it. That was Patton's army. And um, uh, one of the things here, I, I think, see if you can see the little pointer that I have, it's the French Croix de Guerre. And, this was awarded to uh, only a few American soldiers, I, I, I understand. So, and of course the uh, combat infantry badge. But my father, I'm gonna show you a, a few of these pictures so you could just get a sense of who he is and, and where he came from. Uh, this is a photograph of him just a few days before he, re he received his notice to go into the, uh, in the army. He didn't really know uh, what, <laughs> what that, meant and where he had never been away from home. He had, uh, he, he told me that he was very scared to leave home. He didn't know, uh, he didn't know anything outside of his immediate realm. Um, like many of the soldiers in World War II, he had never, never been away from home. This is just, this is a photograph of his first day in the U.S. Army. I asked him once, I said, how did they, 
end up taking this picture. He said, well, you know, they, they, they processed me, they swore me in, they put my uniform on and uh, they shaved my head. <laughs> and she, he said, they, they told me to go stand in front of that flag. And, and then they took a picture and I said, well, you know, you look, you look a lot like Gomer Pyle in that picture. <laughs> he laughed because he, he does look a lot like Gomer Pyle. Um, and, you know, this was, this was, uh, he was 18 years old here. So he, he, this is a, this is a photograph of a couple of days before D-Day, just outside of Oxford, England. Um, and the guys are getting ready. They don't know uh, when they're going over. They don't know what's going on. But uh, a, a man came to them, a general came and spoke to them the day before D-Day. And that man was General George Patton. Uh, many of you may have seen the movie Patton, where at the beginning, George C. Scott gets up and gives a talk. Uh, famous speech before an American flag. Well, it turns out my father was there. He was actually there when when Patton gave that speech. He was actually right in the front. There were thousands upon thousands of American soldiers there. This happened the day before D-Day, and uh, my father told me they they cleaned his, they cleaned it up for the movie as far as what Patton actually said. I contacted the the Patton Society in America, and they sent me a, a transcript of Patton's actual speech. And so because it's part of the story and because it's part of my father's uh, uh, memories and, and experiences in the war, I included that speech in the book. Um, and by the way, I told the, I told the, I, I, I speak in the book in the first person as if my father's telling the story. So it's an, it's an account of what it felt like not only to be in the war, to leave home and all that, but what it felt like to sit in front of this man and sit in front of General Patton and, and hear that speech. And, you know, he told me that the, uh, the soldiers were clapping and yelling and screaming and laughing and Patton loved it. Patton loved them. They loved Patton. And he told me he, he, he really loved Patton. And Patton would come up with them um, on the front lines with them. A lot of the generals would stay back and hang back and he would never see them. Uh, my father was in the 92nd Signal Battalion and uh, the signal battalion had an interesting job because they were supposed to go over on the first day of D-Day. They were supposed to go over on June 6th. General Hayslip, who was one of the generals who was in command, said he did not want the signal battalion, my father's unit, to go over on that day because he was afraid they would get killed and then there would be no communications. The communications were vital. And so the uh, my father's group was held back for a few days uh, and they eventually landed at Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach was the first beach my father ever saw. Raised on a farm in Birmingham, Alabama, had never seen a, had never seen a beach. And um, this was the first beach he ever saw. So it was kind of a shocking event. And the war became very, very real. Uh, life and death became very, very real to him at that point. Uh, he remembers, he told me he remembered seeing uh, a boy an American soldier dead. And he, my father crawled up to where he was and noticed his name tag. And the name tag said McCarthy. And he, he realized, he said, you know, this McCarthy's mother doesn't even know that he's dead, but I do. And he realized the same thing could happen to them. And it became very, very real as far as life and death. He told me, he said, we were trained to fight, but we weren't trained to die. You know, dying is a takes it to another level. Uh, but they, they landed there. They, interestingly enough, they were, my, father, my father was under the command when he landed at Omaha Beach of, of General Teddy Roosevelt Jr., uh, Teddy, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's son, uh, who actually died a couple of days later of a heart attack. Um, so my, being with the Signal Battalion, my father and his, and his group would hook up communications for all of the other, uh, the, all the other soldiers and all the other generals. So here he is. My father's in the foreground here in this picture, with a buddy of his named Silverman in the background, and uh, they would string up the phone lines. They would be up in the trees, and they would, uh, like I say, communicate. String up the communications. They would, interestingly enough, they told me they would actually listen in to sometimes the communications between Patton and Eisenhower and Bradley and all these all these other guys because this was this was the switchboard they, they sort of put up the lines they had the switchboards etc so uh, 
uh, interestingly, they they were telling me at one of the reunions I went to with my father and, and talked to his buddies and got to know them very well. And they were very open about their stories. And they told me everything. One of them, one of them who actually did, you know, operate the switchboard and listened in to a lot of the conversations, a guy named Mike Carapella was an incredible, incredible man. He told me, he said, um, you know, uh, of conversations that he would listen into between Patton and Eisenhower. <laughs> he told me that they didn't call up and say, this is General Patton's you know, uh, uh, assistant, we'd want to speak with, you know, General Eisenhower. They had code names and Patton's code name was Lucky Six. Eisenhower's code name was Etauza 2000. Etauza, European Theater of Operations, USA 2000. And I asked him, I said, what, can I put that in the book? Is that okay? He said, yeah, it's declassified. You know, we won the war, so it's over. <laughs> so you can go ahead and put that in the book. One of the reasons I wanted to show you this picture of my father and, and his buddy Silverman, he was very close with Silverman. And um, uh, uh, like I said, my father had never been had never been out of Birmingham, Alabama, had never, you know, he only knew his his immediate group of people, which were the people he went to school with, and more importantly, his family, which was an Italian Italian family that had come from uh, Sicily. Jew, uh, Mr. Silverman here was a, a Jewish jeweler from New York. And my father and he became very, very close. And uh, there's a whole story of him in the book and, and, and their relationship. And uh, uh, But it's interesting because one time my father uh, told me the story that they were up in some trees, just like you see here. And like I say, Patton would come up to the front lines and talk to them. He would tell them about things that he did during during World War One, and he would ask them how they're doing and and uh, just chat with them. And my, like I say, my father loved that because a lot of the generals never never came around. But there's a, there's a story about Patton coming up one day. Silverman, my father, and a few of his other buddies were up in the trees stringing some phone lines, and the infantry was down below them, and they saw a jeep coming up with the you know, American flags and stars coming up, flying up to the front lines. And they watched and the Jeep came to a screeching halt, out stepped General Patton. And Patton looked up into the tree, he looked down at the infantry who, was, who were down below. And the infantry guys had been telling my father and his buddies, you need to get down out of those trees, you're giving away our position. And the, uh, the guys, you know, my father and his, and his buddies in the signal battalion said, no, this is our job. We, this is what we're. This is what we're called to do. This is this is our this is our uh, uh, our job. We have to do this. So he uh, he said, Patton comes up. He looks down at the infantry guys who are down below. He looks up at my father and his buddies and says, he sort of gets their attention. He says, Hey, soldier, looks up and actually gets Silverman's attention. And Silverman uh, says, Yes, sir. And he says, What are you doing up there? Uh, what are you doing up there, soldier? And, and Silverman said. Sir, I'm stringing the phone lines, stringing up the phone lines. And he says, okay. And he says, uh, let me ask you something. From where you are, can you see the, the enemy? From where you are up there, can you see where the enemy is? And Silverman looked out into the distance and said, yes, sir, I can see them. They're right over there. I can see them. And, and, and Patton said, well, don't they make you... Uh, don't they make you nervous? Don't they scare you? And, and, and Silverman's quote was, he looked down and said, no, General, they don't scare me, but, but you do. <laughs> so so these, you know, Patton loved it. He laughed. He said, oh, these signal battalion guys are crazy SOBs. And he laughed. He got in his Jeep and, and took off again. But uh, like I say, my, uh, my father and his buddies, they loved, they loved uh, General Patton. These are just some photographs of my father. This is actually in, in Germany. Uh, receiving a letter, obviously letters from home were, uh, and my father signed his name here and all that, but letters from home were an incredible treasure. Uh, and this is in, this is a, a photograph at the bottom in, in France, just taking a break, having some wine. Um, one of the things my father would say a lot was he, he talked about the, the, the American soldiers and what they accomplished. This is one of the things that I've always been very passionate about, especially in regard to in regard to the liberation of Dachau, in regard to the liberation of the Holocaust. Um, because as they went through Europe, my father said, he would tell me, we looked after the little children. He said, thank God for the American soldiers. The quote that I have here, and this is in the book, he said, thank God for the American soldier. We did our best to look out for the little children. Whenever we would see them watching us in the child line, we would each get a kid, 
put him or her in front of us and give the child half of our mess kit. Captain told us we weren't supposed to do that because there might not be enough for all the military, but we didn't care. We love these kids. They had gone through hell and really had nothing to do with the war. It made all of the guys feel good to see these kids eat, to do something kind and gentle in contrast to the chaotic inhumanity surrounding us. I know it made me happy, and I believe it made God happy, me watching over the children while he watched over me. So this was the ethos of my father and his and his buddies in the American soldier. And I've always, uh, I was personally never in the military. My father was, my grandfather was actually in World War I. Uh, I was not, but I've always had great love, respect for the military uh, because of the example that I saw with my father and, and the men that he served with in the greatest generation. And when you were with them, you knew there was greatness in the room. And, uh, and, and so I, 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 I want to make sure that everybody understands who they are and what they were and, and what they meant for this country and what their memory and their example continues to mean for our great nation. Um, on, on Sunday, April 29th, 1945, they entered the Dachau concentration camp. Now, you know, I was showing you these, these swords and, and daggers and things like that and medals that my father had, had shown me when I was a kid. But when I was about 12, he, he showed me, one day he came to me with my mother and he said, I, I want to show you something that happened during the war. I assumed it was something like another medal or, or another sword or something. I was excited. And he said to me, he had a photo album and he said, I'm going to show you this. It happened during the war. It, 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 it happened at a concentration camp. I honestly, at that point, didn't know what a concentration camp was. I never heard of such a thing. So I asked him, I said, what's that? He said, well, the Nazis were killing people there, but we made them stop. And he said, I want to show you this. I want to show you these, these uh, photographs for two reasons. One is that at some point in your life, someone is going to try to tell you that this didn't really happen. He said it did happen. I was there and I saw it. It did happen. And uh, he said, the other thing is I wanted you to make sure that this never happens again, ever. I said, okay. And so he started showing me these photographs. And this is the front gate of, of Dachau. And it, they were horrendous. I mean, I'm not going to show those today, but, but they're in my, some of them are in my book. And he had many that are, you know, had never been obviously published or seen by anybody that he had taken. They had found, they had, my father and his buddies had found a, uh, a, a train a truck with cameras and German cameras and film a, a couple of days before they had entered Dachau at the very end of the war this was like I say April 29th 1945 which was uh, right near the end of the war so they had found these these photo these uh, uh, cameras and and film and so they just took them and when they entered the camp they realized this, that it would be important to start taking pictures of what they saw my father was in the first 200 people to enter that camp, and they shut the camp down after the initial wave got in there. He told me that it only took took a, a, about 20 minutes to take over the camp for the American soldiers to take over the camp. Most of the regular Nazis or the American, the regular uh, uh, German soldiers had left. They a lot of them had already surrendered and left. The the, the Nazi SS troops were left behind and they were going to defend that place to the death. And honestly, they were going to try to kill as many people as they, as they could. When my father and his buddies walked in, what they saw was unimaginable. These are, these are men who had landed at Omaha beach. These are men who had been through the battle of the bulge. My father had, had, uh, you know, with the signal battalion, he was with or in front of the infantry at all times during the war. So he had witnessed almost every major battle during world war II up close, personal, with bullets going around uh, uh, by him and, uh, and people dying. And, and he had witnessed his own friends die. And yet when he walked in, he and his buddies walked into this camp, uh, they said that 
he, he said that he had never seen anything like this and knew that he would never see anything like this again. It was the most horrendous thing. Grown men, a lot of these soldiers, combat hardened soldiers were in tears. Um, there is one point when he said that he went up to, there was a, a, a the, the details of the liberation are in the book, really strong details of, of everything that he saw and witnessed when they got there. Uh, but one of the things he saw, there were these cattle cars. And he said that he went up and and walked uh, and, and climbed up to the top of one of the cattle cars and looked down and they were looking for anybody alive in these in these cars because there were there were there was death and destruction in these cars. Prisoners had been starved. The, the SS troops, like I say, were were trying to kill all of the prisoners. They were trying to kill them all before the Americans got there. They knew the Americans were coming. I've spoken to people who were in the camp, who were prisoners in the camp, and I've also spoken to people who lived in the Dachau, in in the city of Dachau, uh, and. You know, the prisoners tell me uh, that the, the, the soldiers, the SS, were they wanted to kill everybody. And when my father and his buddies walked in, they saw uh, death and destruction on a scale they, they could have never imagined. Um, women, children, babies, little boys, little girls killed, um, old people, elderly, starved, hate to say it, decapitated. Uh, death was everywhere. Thousands upon thousands of people dying, dead. Um, and like I say, there were cattle cars and my father and his buddies climbed up. They were looking into the cattle cars, a lot of death down in there in, in, in this string of cattle cars, but they wanted to see if there was anybody alive. My father said that he looked down and he noticed, uh, you know, a note, and he's showing me photographs of all this while he's telling me. I'm not showing the photographs here because they're just, I just think they're too graphic. You can look at them in the book, uh, uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to broadcast them on here. But uh, one of the photographs, there was a uh, uh, bodies all in the bottom of one of these cars. My father noticed in the corner was a lady nursing a baby. And I asked him how old was the lady. He said, she's probably about 22, 23. You have to remember, my father was 19 or 20 at this time. I think he was he just turned 20. So um, he said that he saw this lady nursing a baby. Both of them were dead. To him, to my father, being raised, like I say, Italian Catholic, to him, this was symbolic of the Madonna and child, a, a, a symbol of hope and life. And he told me that he... he felt like the lady was telling her baby son, uh, he assumed it was a, ba a son, he said he, he felt like he was, the lady was telling her, please hold on, I'm, you know, giving, her, giving the baby every last drop of life. Please hold on until the Americans can, can get here. My father said he saw that, he knew at that moment that that was the most tragic thing he would ever see in his life. And that he um, he actually started to weep. And he said that he felt his body shaking and he started crying. And he said, he said a prayer to God. And he asked that God would for, forgive him for not getting there sooner, for not being able to save, you know, the lady and her baby. Um, These are some of the prisoners that were that were rescued. Uh, many of them were too weak to walk. A lot of them died even after the liberation. The American soldiers tried to give them food, but uh, some of them died because they couldn't eat too much. And uh, my father, who could speak Italian, he actually spoke Italian before he could speak English. So he actually translated some of the some of the prisoners were Italians, and so he was able to translate and uh, and help them. Um, they kept the they kept the prisoners uh, uh, segregated. They didn't just let them run free. They they wanted to keep them safe. And uh, these are some photographs of some of the some of the prisoners after the liberation happened. Uh, my father 
my father said the following, which was which was very interesting to me. He said the prisoners had apparently not understood what was happening during the first 30 minutes or so after we took over the camp. But now they were beginning to realize that we were the good guys and they that they had been liberated. Some of them beca- began yelling and shouting. The cheers of the few soon grew to become a deafening roar throughout the camp. These are the ones we save, I thought, as chills ran through my body. He told me it was very much, it sounded very much like being at a football game and your team just scored a touchdown and maybe won the game. And the crowd, you know, that sound of a roaring crowd, he said it just got louder and louder. He said they were crowding together, reaching through the fences, wanting to touch us. They looked like the walking dead, just like the, 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 the gentleman looked in the, in a photograph before he said like they were too frail to, to stand or reach or even smile yet in their parched voices, we heard jubilation and in their sunken eyes, we saw the joyful glimmers of resurrected hope. They were laughing, crying, singing, holding their arms high in the air, embracing each other while looking at us in disbelief, almost unable to grasp that their day of liberation, their exodus was at hand. Just then, as if on some celestial cue, the sun broke through the clouds, sending shafts of light and color over the entire camp. Darkness had been defeated by light, and the prisoners, squinting into that brilliance, reached out to us and wept tears of joy. Their agony was over, but for us, the liberators, our journey into this deepest part of hell was just beginning. Um, the 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 soldiers experienced for the for the next 24 hours you know the camp and they uh, actually here's a, a photo of the of the, the box cars that my father and his buddies uh found with with bodies in it and uh, this is a this is a photograph i i did a an article i wrote an article for usa today magazine and they chose a photograph i had never really seen this photograph it wasn't one of my father's but they chose a photograph for the front uh for the for the front cover of the of the article and i noticed there was a soldier standing down here you can see him circled in red and it turns out that was my father <laughs> that's my father's in the and he had talked about how you know the, the prisoners had reached through the gates and you know were were uh, uh calling for them and, and thanking the American soldiers and how grateful they look. And this, this is a very uh, poignant photograph for me because my father had several other photographs. He had this, the same cigarette, you know, pose with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He, he almost looked like he's about to start crying in this photograph. And this was showed you the heart of, of, of my father. And I think of many of many of the American soldiers as they, uh, as they liberated, as they helped, as they, as they freed uh, the the people and stopped and and one of the things you know it, it, that I've thought about that that we don't think of that much is that the Holocaust stopped the minute the American soldiers got to the camp. It didn't stop because of a negotiation. It didn't stop because the Nazis had a change of heart. It didn't stop because they just ran out of people to kill. It stopped because the American soldiers got there. It stopped because the American soldiers got there. Um, uh, you know, I've I've heard it said that peace is not necessarily the absence of war, but peace, in its truest sense, is the absence of fear. So my father and his buddies and the rest of the American soldiers who were there that day, they came to re-instill uh, uh, peace, to 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 bring about a, uh, uh, order, and to eliminate fear that these people had lived in. Um, one of the things that uh, my father told me as he showed me the photographs, uh, he said, you know, uh, the, the photographs that he showed me were horrendous. And it, it, I was looking at, he had told me, never let this happen again. You know, I want you to know that this happened, which I could obviously see that it happened. He he had pictures and he was telling me, but it, it, he also, he also said, I never want, I want you to never let this happen again. I was wondering as a 12 year old, um, how could I prevent this from happening? It took the entire might of the American army to stop this, to stop this. So how can I, how can I prevent this from happening? 
I came to later understand that one of the ways I could stop this from happening is to tell people about it, to bring awareness, to, to bring um, that uh, truth to people and to, uh, to let them understand what really did happen and to not allow them to change history. It is said that you know, the victors write the history and sometimes history becomes rewritten later on. It doesn't mean that the facts have changed. It just means there are new victors. People come up and try to change it. Well, we will not, I will not, I will not let somebody change, anybody change this history. This happened. And, and also the American soldiers stopped it you know, through their efforts, through their, you know, leaving home and doing the things. One of the things my father said was the following, the meaning of their mission, which was very interesting to me. He said to me, we left Dachau later that morning, the next morning, they stayed there for about 24 hours. We left Dachau later that morning, having assisted the relief organizations in their efforts to bring some semblance of humanity back to this place that had endured so much tragedy and sorrow. Our hearts were burdened by what we had seen, but somehow lifted by the passionate gratitude of the liberated who had blessed us with their joy and rewarded us with unexpected insights into what we had achieved. Now, and this is the key, now, after a year of combat, each of us finally and forever understood why destiny had called us to travel so far from the land of our birth and to fight for people we did not know. And so it was here in this place abandoned by God and accursed by men that we came to discover the meaning of our mission. This is my father. A few days after the liberation. And, um, you know, once again, you could see in his hand cigarettes. <laughs> the cigarette was there. My father had never smoked before he went into the army, but all the guys started smoking when they were there. Um, the fact that they understood and, and in some way, in some ways were blessed by being part of the liberation and they could actually see the people they saved, see the people that they liberated. There are, there were tens of thousands of people saved that day. There are hundreds of thousands of people, if not even more, maybe more, several hundreds of thousands who are alive today because these guys arrived at Dachau. They got there. Um, and, and so children and families have been allowed to, to prosper. I've, I've received many, many thanks uh, personally as I go around the country and give talks. Uh, very sincere people who are not only in the camps who were liberated, uh, but uh, the children and grandchildren of, of, of the people who were liberated who will thank me uh, and they'll say thank you for what your father has done, um, and um, I appreciate I appreciate that. And and as my father, when he would meet people, my father passed away in two thousand seven, but he did get to go with me around the country and meet a lot of people and speak with them. And he met a lot of those he had liberated. He had never seen them for the last sixty years, and now um, now he had been able to be reunited after after 60 odd years. And they would always, like I say, thank him. They would hug him. There would always be tears. And he, and, and he would always ask them, are you okay? Do you need anything? And he, he still felt protective of them. Interestingly, and I don't know if it's part of the, just the DNA or the, the way I was raised or whatever, but I still feel protective of them. I wanna make sure that they're okay. And like my father said, I wanna make sure by telling the truth of this, of this Holocaust uh, uh, and bearing witness to that truth that this does not happen again, that we do remember it, that we do understand that this really did happen. And because I've had people tell me it didn't happen. I've had people threaten me after I wrote my book. And as I go and give talks, I've had people threaten me, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna harm you for lying about this. This never really happened. Well, I know that it happened. Uh, this picture, uh, you see the picture of my father in his first day in the U.S. military in the Army. And I say he looked like Gomer Pyle. This next picture was taken almost two years later. Uh, this was taken in Salzburg, Austria, uh, a few day, about a week after the liberation of Dachau. And you can look at, the, look at my father's eyes. There's, 
there's something you can tell he has seen his his his, his he has seen he has witnessed something that is almost unimaginable. He told me he would he would and look at the difference between those uh, between those two. He told me that he would he would see new recruits, uh, new members of the military command, new new members of the infantry. They would be coming in. They would be fresh. They would be uh, just out of training. They would be 18 years old. Uh, they would be marching up to the front lines. And my father would see them go past him, and he told his buddy once, Ed Duffy. He told he told Duffy. He said, "You know, uh, look at these boys. They're a lot of them look like they've never shaved. They don't know anything. They're they're not trained. They, you know." Duffy said, "Well, they've been trained by the military, just like you were." He said, "But they're just kids. They're going to get killed." And, my, and, and Duffy, my father's buddy, told him, "Joe, you're only 19 years old." You know. My father had said that he felt like he was he was 19 when he when he landed at Omaha Beach, and he felt like he was 35 by the time he got to the top of those cliffs. But um, this is what they went through. This is what they experienced. And he told me he said that he thought that no one would ever be able to understand what he went through, um, which is another reason I wrote the book so that people could understand and and hear and 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 feel what he felt. This is a picture of my father on the left uh, with a uh, man named Max Steinmetz. Max uh, lives in Birmingham, Alabama, which is where my father was raised. Uh, my father's family, his parents had come in from, uh, come to America from Sicily, had gone to New York, through Ellis Island, had ended up in Chicago. And just, just to tell you, this is one little background, my father and his my father's fa my father's parents, both sets of grandparents, actually had ended up in Chicago from Sicily, and my grandfathers, who were kind of feisty, got in a got in a fight with Al Capone, um, and they fled <laughs> for their own safety and the safety of their family. They they ended up leaving Chicago uh, after some incidents that I won't get into here, but it's an interesting story. Um, and they ended up. Uh, they ended up in Birmingham, Alabama. So this is where my father' parents had their farm, and where my father was was raised. And um, and so this is where uh, where I was raised. And this gentleman in this photograph of my father, they're reading the Stars and Stripes from the week of the liberation of Dachau. And this man is uh, Max Steinmetz. He was a prisoner at Dachau, so he was one of the ones liberated. And um, uh, so it was uh, incredible to know, to, to get to meet him. And this is, a, uh, this is a really incredible photograph of the two of them and, and uh, the bond that they had made uh, on that Sunday morning in 1945. This is a photograph of me a few years ago. You can tell how young I look. And uh, this is uh, the man with me is, is uh, Ambassador Georg von Hohenberg. Um, Ambassador Hohenberg was the, I met him, I was giving a, a speech, a, a lecture in Vienna, Austria. I was invited to give a, a lecture there, uh, not to name drop, but it's impossible not to name drop at this point, uh, by the royal families, the Liechtensteins, the Luxembourgs, the Habsburgs, um, invited me to, to come and speak to them. Well, I spoke to them, and and this, this gentleman, uh, Gerd von Hohenberg, was the grandson he ambassador Hornberg passed away recently but he was the the grandson of the archduke ferdinand the grandson of the archduke ferdinand archduke ferdinand and his wife sophia were were assassinated in sarajevo in 1914 and that kicked off world war 1 and so uh, uh, i i spoke to him a lot dur during the week i got to know him very well he he was you know and and and, and by the way this photograph was taken we went out for a uh, a sort of a walk around, I wouldn't call it a hike, but a walk around uh, the castle one day where we were staying and, and to, to visit to visit with nature. And this, just, just so you see, these, these, are, these are his casual clothes and, 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 and those are my casual clothes. So <laughs> you can sort of see the difference, but uh, he, uh, he would have, I, I, I suppose he would have been the emperor had his grandfather not been assassinated in 1914 and he um 
I talked to him a lot about his grandfather and his grandparents at that, that point in time. He was telling me stories about Rasputin and all. He had Being around somebody like that who was involved in history, I wanted to just ask him questions. And so I peppered him with questions and uh, for, for a week. I stayed there for a week. And he was very, very, very uh, congenial and, uh, and, and wonderful. And we, we became friends. At the very end of the week, we were sitting around having tea, uh, which happens, you know, when you're with the royalty, sometimes you, sometimes you have tea. They like tea, and don't we all? So I was having tea, and, and he was there, and the Princess of Liechtenstein, the Princess, princess of Prince Liechtenstein, the Contessa, all, all of us were around the Habsburgs, and, and me, just like a, the, the grandson of peasants from Sicily, was sitting with the royalty, talking to them. And I, re I realized, I said, you know what, this whole week I've been talking to, uh, he had told me, you know, he had told me, you just call me Georg, but I couldn't call him Georg. I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do that. So he had just resigned from being the ambassador from Austria to the Vatican. So I, I decided to call him Mr. Ambassador. And um, so the ambassador said to me, you know, he, I said, you know, Mr. Ambassador, I was talking to you and I've been asking you questions. You've been so patient with me asking you about your grandparents this whole week and, and, and over and over that part of history. I said, but, you know, I never asked you anything about your father. Can you tell me something about your father? Of all the things that he could have said to me about his father, um, it, if, about his whole father's life, he said to me one thing. He said, well, during World War II, my father was a prisoner at the concentration camp at Dachau. Now, I was there not to give a speech about Dachau, not to give a talk about Dachau. I was actually giving it a, a talk about something completely different. And I had never mentioned Dachau or, his, or my father or anything else during that, during that week that I was there. But when, I, you know, when he said that, I said, Mr. Ambassador, do you, do you know much about the liberation? And he said, yes. Sunday, April 29th, 1945. Uh, there were, I said, well, there were only about 200 American soldiers, 250 or so American soldiers who liberated that camp that day. He said, I'm well aware of that. I told him, I said, well, you know, my father was one of those American soldiers. When I said that, he stood up. He had his vest. He had his three-piece suit. He, he, looked, he looked like he could have been the emperor. He stood up. He straightened his jacket. He walked. When he stood up, the you know the the princes of Liechtenstein, the prince, princes of Luxembourg, the Contessa, everybody stood up. I didn't know what to do, so I stood up. And when I did, he walked he walked across to me. He embraced me, and he said, "Please convey to your father my family's most sincere gratitude." And at that moment, I realized that this was a very very big story. I mean, I I had always thought that everybody's father liberated a concentration camp. Everybody's father landed at Omaha Beach. Everybody's father had seen General Patton give his speech. Um, and it was it only occurred to me then that this this didn't happen with everybody. This this was sort of a very unique story. And and interestingly enough when I went to uh, I had the idea to write the book. Um, I didn't know any publishers. I didn't know anybody uh, uh, who I'd never written a book. I'd, I'd read a book, but I'd never written one. And, uh, but I thought, how do you, how do you get a book? How do you write a book? How do you get it published? Cause I knew I wanted to tell the story. My degree is in engineering from, from Notre Dame, but how do you write a book? So I thought, well, I, Maybe I can do it. I mean, people do it. So why can't I do it? So I, I, people were telling me, you need a, an agent. You need a literary agent in order to write the book. I didn't have a literary agent. So I went around looking for them. And when I did, they, uh, literary agents kept telling me, uh, well, nobody wants to hear about your father's experiences in World War II. Nobody cares. I told them that story about the ambassador. I said, this is a very unique story. This is a man who, who from humble beginnings touched lives across the, across the, across the globe. And, and it turns out that Princess Margaret de Luxembourg, who's a wonderful, wonderful person, uh, her 
grandparents had also been at Dachau. And I said, you know, the, the, there are thousands of people, including royalty, including, including uh, the common man on the street, uh, including the, the impoverished who were there, who were liberated by my father and his buddies that day. This is a big story. And, and we've never heard the story of the liberators. We, we've never heard their story. We hear a lot about the Nazis. But we've never heard who who these men were and how it affect how that day affected their lives. And and agents, just so you know, agents were telling me, you know what, nobody cares. And maybe if you write something, just go ahead and write it, and uh, maybe you'll sell a couple hundred copies. Maybe I doubt it, but uh, nobody's going to publish it. And just publish it yourself. And we've heard all the stories of World War II. And I said, you haven't heard this. You haven't heard this. And by the way. There's also a romance. There's also a romance in the book. My father meets a, a French girl. I wasn't going to really originally include it. My mother insisted that uh, that uh, I include that story, so I did. And it's a lot of people's favorite uh, part of the book. But uh, you know, the 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 agents kept telling me nobody's going to read it. We're not going to help you get a publisher. So I started to realize. One of the things I would do, I would think more like my father. I would think more like the, the American soldiers of World War II, more like the guys who, who landed at Omaha Beach and who liberated the Dachau concentration camp. I will not ask for permission to succeed. And I tell any young people, anything you want to do, and really anybody of any age, if you have something you want to do, you want to accomplish, as long as it's good, do it. Accomplish it. Do not ask for permission to succeed. I was asking these agents for permission to succeed. They were telling me no. My loyalty to my father, to the photographs he had shown me, and to the, to the uh, charge he had given me years earlier was too strong. And I said, I cannot be, uh, I cannot be uh, dissuade, uh, dissuaded from this. I will tell his story. Um, and so I decided to look another route. I contacted HarperCollins directly through a friend. And the, um, the, HarperCollins sent me, uh, called me and said, this is an incredible story. We've never heard a story like this before. We would like to publish your book. What's it going to take? And I said, uh, a contract. And they, they sent me the contract. They, uh, I wrote the book. The book came out. The book was immediately on bestseller list. The book was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. The book won several awards. Um, I'm not just saying that to talk about myself. I'm saying it in regard to uh, never take no for an answer when you want to do what's right. And also how happy it made me in the years before my father passed away, going around the country with it. You can see him pictured here with the book. Uh, he was very happy about the book. I, you know, he, he was just one thing quick. I, I, I'm going to wrap it up here, but uh, he, uh, he said to me, uh, uh, you know, he said, this, they should make a movie of it. And so he was out in Los Angeles once and he, <laughs> I was, I was uh, with him and there were these, these girls, uh, you know, actresses, models, all these types. They were kind of swarming around my father, which they tended to do uh, because, you know, why not look at him? And they were asking him one day, they said, Mr. Sacco, who, who do you think should play you in the movie? And he, he pointed to the cover of the book and he said, I, I don't know. But whoever he is, he, he better be good looking. <laughs> you know, so so um, uh, my father was very proud of the book and, and, uh, and I was very proud of him and what he accomplished. Um, I, will, uh, I will end this with, with just a quote, if I may, from, from General Patton. Um, General Patton said the following, and, and, and I quote General Patton throughout the book, but uh, Patton said the following about, about my father, about the, the other men in the Third Army. He said, by God, I'm proud of these men. To me, it's a never-ending marvel what our soldiers can do. This war has made higher demands on courage and discipline than any war which I've known. But when you see men who have demonstrated courage and discipline, and they are killed or wounded. It naturally raises a lump in your throat, sometimes produces a tear in your eye. Back of us stretches a line of men whose acts of valor and self-sacrifice and of service 
have been the theme of song and story since before recorded history began. These are your fathers and grandfathers. These are the victors of war. And so in conclusion, I, I, uh, I just want to uh, thank uh, the Institute for inviting me to be here. I want to thank each and every one of you for, for joining us, for being here. And I would, uh, I'm very happy, you know, if you have any questions to, uh, to take those at this, at this time. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Mr. Sacco, for sharing that very interesting information. Um, just your father's account um, is very intriguing. And if you guys um, are interested, please check out this book. Uh, we do have a few questions uh, coming in from our attendees. Um, the first question, which I think is, is a very interesting question. Um, did your father ever go back to visit the concentration camp after the war was over? He did not. He he, I did. I went and, and visited and got to know it. It was interesting. My father wanted to go back and we actually wanted to go to, as a family, go to uh, Normandy and then go through all the places and obviously go to, go to Dachau. Uh, we, we were planning to do that. Unfortunately, my father got sick and passed away uh, just before we could do that. So he did not get to do, he did not get to go. But uh, uh, when I went it was an interesting experience because this is going to sound very strange. Uh, the, the way I'm going to phrase this, uh, I, I actually, obviously, when you, if many of you have been to Dachau, uh, it, it's a somber experience when you walk in there. You, you know, I named the book "Where the Birds Never Sing," but because you don't hear anything there, it's very quiet and, and there's no talking or anything. It seems when I went, I felt that, but I also. Interestingly enough, I felt, this is going to sound strange, but I felt a sense of pride. Why? Because I knew my father had, was part of the solution. He was part of the, he, he had been there and stopped it. He had stopped that evil in its tracks that day, that minute. So uh, my father didn't get to go, but, but I did on his behalf. My next question um, for you is, in recounting your father's story, what did you find to be the most difficult part to write about or recount? There were, there were two main parts that were difficult. One was, one was um, the liberation itself, because I wanted to go into really sort of excruciating detail. I remember when I was writing that part, I called, I called him, and my mother answered the phone. And when she did, I said, oh, I feel I'm writing the, the, the chapters on, the, uh, on, uh, on, on the liberation. She said, how's, how's it going? I said, it's okay. I said, I feel, I feel really bad. She said, why? I said, because when I was, when my father was 19, 18, 19, he went off to a war. You know, he liberated people from the Holocaust. This is a big deal. I mean, <laughs> this is a big deal in history. I said, he did that. When I was 18, I went to the University of Notre Dame. We had maids in our dorms, okay? <laughs> we had maids in our dorms. I mean, I, I said, I didn't do anything dangerous, and yet he did this. And it was nice. My mother said, look, he, he, he didn't have a choice, okay? He didn't have a choice. But you, you were called to, to, to write about it. You were called to let people know. So you have a part in that. The, the power of the story is in the, in the telling of the story. And you have a part in what he did and what he accomplished. So you do your part. The other part that was difficult for me, and I think if anybody reads the book, they'll understand this, was when his friends were lost, when his friends died. There were, there were moments when I knew it was happening. I had an outline. I knew when they were going to die. And I felt this sense of dread. And then I felt a sense of loss when they had gone. Because it took me a year, to research, a year and a half to research and write the book. And I felt like I was almost in a time machine, you know, back to the future with my father. I felt like I was hanging out with him as a, as a, as a young soldier. And so I would feel what he felt. I wanted to feel it. And I wanted the readers to feel it. So those, those parts were very difficult for me. How has writing this book impacted your understanding of World War II and just um, liberation of concentration camps in general? Well, Number one, I, it, I became acutely aware of, of what it was like. You know, one of the things that we think in terms of in regards to 
to World War II, since we've seen movies and TV shows, et cetera, we tend, we tend to think in terms of, of a particular battle, or, and we also tend to think in general terms that we won. Yeah, we won that war. But in reality, these guys, these soldiers didn't know if they were going to win or lose. They, they, there was a point, you know, and they were frightened. They were away from home. Like I say, many of them for the first time. As I said, my father, the first beach he ever saw was Omaha Beach. Most of these guys had never been away from home. They were school teachers and they worked at the drugstore and they were farm boys, et cetera, like my father. And um, and there were times, well, you know, they they obviously feared death, but there were times when they didn't know, They honestly, they didn't have all the communications that we have now. So they didn't know what was happening a lot of times over that hill, over, you know, they didn't know what was happening in the war. And there were times when, when they thought they had lost, like during the Battle of the Bulge, they didn't know if they were, they thought maybe they had lost the war. Um, so, and then the, the liberation itself, one of the things that became very clear to me, not only the, the reality of it and the depth of it, and, 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 and I interviewed not only my father, but his buddies and what they felt that day, and they would tear up they would talk about Omaha Beach, you know, and other battles, Battle of the Bulge, et cetera. They would just tell me sort of matter of factly what it was like when they would talk about the liberation, even some 60 years later, they would tear up. And it was that day that, that changed everything for them. And uh, so, you know, that understanding of, of, of the magnitude of, of the liberation of, of that day and, uh, of what they really saw and what they really experienced and how it changed them as people uh, when they came back. The, you know, writing the book really, really brought it home to me uh, more than just the stories I'd heard growing up. When I put it all together, it really brought it home. You mentioned that uh, one of the purposes in writing this book was to make sure that something like this never happened again. So how do you think we as a culture can remember our history and do our part in making sure that this... Um, these atrocities don't happen again. Well, one one of those one of the important aspects of that is to understand that it did happen, to to acknowledge that it did happen. You know, like I say, there are people, and they can be very vocal and they can be very uh, violent sometimes. I mean, like I say, I've had people threaten me, telling me it did not happen, and um, so you know, to, to to understand that it did happen, to, and also to understand how these types of things happen. You know, these types of things happen because people are marginalized and it's easy to do. Marginalizing, you know, it sounds like it's a really bad thing, but it's also a very easy thing to do, to marginalize people. We all tend to do it, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, we all kind of marginalize other people, other groups, other sports teams, you know, so we, we just kind of do that, uh, is part of uh, is part of you know who we are as people, but we we almost we we never tend to marginalize ourselves. It's always somebody else. We don't like the way they look. We don't like the way they you know the, 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 their skin color. We don't like the, how tall they are. We don't like their hair color. We don't like what they think or believe or whatever. And um, and 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 so we have to be number one careful of that my my view and, and especially in going through this and, and and studying the history of it um and also we have to we have to guard against indifference uh, indifference indifference is the ally of evil indifference indifference honestly is a garden in which evil can grow unchallenged uh you see things happening we have to speak out and and not simply in defense of ourselves but in defense of others in defense of others, uh, a, a man I met, uh, he was in at Dachau. He was Jewish. He was in, from Germany. And he told me that when, when all this started happening uh, and, and the, uh, the Jews were being marginalized in Germany, his family, who, they were Jews, they were German, they didn't think it applied to them. He told me we didn't think it applied to us. We thought it meant they meant the Jews coming from other countries. And so when, you know, we we didn't think it was us. And so then he realized he was he was one of the mar he was one of the marginalized. He ended up in a concentration camp and fortunately he lived. But I think, you know, though though different, we may, we're all everybody's different. We're different from the people in our own families, but we're all 
we have to understand that we're all bound by a common humanity, you know, a common thirst to be understood and a common desire to live in freedom and peace. And we, we must, we must understand the mistakes of the past and learn from those mistakes uh, with a full understanding that we are indeed capable of repeating those mistakes. Thank you so much for sharing more about your book with our audience and answering our attendee questions. I believe that is all the time that we have this evening. Um, I would like to thank Mr. Sacco for joining us and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Sacco. Thank you very much.